This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Live podcast, Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christine Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. I'm Christy Shriver. We're here to read books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lid podcast. Before we get started today, we want to take a moment and give a shout out to our good friends, Dr. David Schatzberger and his wife, Holly. They're the ones that uh, put together that great Christmas music you heard at the beginning. Stick around for the end of the podcast, so we're going to play the whole thing for you. It's great, and you'll enjoy it. Thanks, David and Holly. If you're listening to this in real time, we are in the second week of December 2020 and have just finished the excruciatingly brutal book, Wuthering Heights. So um, as a sorbet to our spirits and to our brains, for the next three weeks, we will be doing a little light reading with some traditional Christmas narratives. This week, we're going to feature O. Henry and his wildly popular short story, The Gift of the Magi. Next week, we'll feature a visit from St. Nicholas, or better known as Twas the Night Before Christmas by Clement Clark Moore, both American authors, by the way. And finally, the week of Christmas, we will rebroadcast our analysis of the sacred text from the second chapter of Luke in the King James Bible. But before we go into O. Henry's plot-twisting life story, let's remind you that it is the month of giving, and we would like to give to you, our listeners, by featuring and promoting your small business on our social media platforms. So send us a picture of your shop, your cafe, your restaurant, your school, whatever it is that you do for a living. We want to give you a shout out wherever you live in our world. During the season of worldwide struggle, let's help each other out by recognizing those that are making our individual communities unique and identifiable as best as we can. 
Well, highlighting working community builders is certainly in the spirit of O. Henry. Uh, this famous short story illustrates this a little bit, but the larger body of work by O. Henry definitely features the working man. He identified with many of us and spoke to us in force, and, and I, I guess this was a reason for his crazy success. But before uh, we let loose and venture into the hills of North Carolina to meet the young Will Porter, and yes, his name wasn't actually O. Henry, uh, before <laughs> we do all that, let me ask all of you, if you enjoyed our work, please continue to support us by sharing an episode with a friend, visiting us on our social media, and giving us a rating. It really helps us grow. And now, after all that ado, let's chat about O. Henry, or as he was born into this world, William Sidney Porter, on September 11th, but in the year 1862. <laughs> Not an awesome time to be born in the United States of America. For one thing, we were still in the throes of the American Civil War, and uh, there were massive casualties on both sides, and there was no end in sight. Uh, but there were other deadly forces moving across the world, and not just in the United States and Europe, and namely, in this case, tuberculosis, uh, a deadly, terrifying, life-threatening plague, as it is still today in, in some parts of the world. But at the time of O. Henry's birth, it was more deadly than even the Civil War. And Today, it's still in the top 10 killers on planet Earth, and it's killed more humans on Earth than any other single disease. But in O. Henry's day, it was killing one of every seven people living in the United States. It's something we also saw uh, in the Poe episodes. Uh, at that time, there wasn't any known cure, and there was nothing anyone felt they could do about this illness. And Porter's mother died of it when he was three years old. Well, ironically, Will Porter's dad was a doctor, except during the Civil War, that meant a lot of work, but not very much income. No one had money to pay a doctor, and Mr. Porter, or Dr. Porter, didn't have any either, so when his wife died, he was forced to move in with his mother so she could help take care of his three boys, but... All of this took a toll on Dr. Porter, and he had his own personal demons and soon became an alcoholic, which was a problem that O'Henry would inherit years later, too. Anyway, at this time, little Will Porter did okay as a kid. His aunt provided for him a very impressive education, and he read a lot. Eventually, he worked as a pharmacist. Now, that doesn't mean he got, like, all the degrees that pharmacists <laughs> have today. School. But uh, he worked at the local pharmacy. Uh, until he was 19 when he caught his big break and he was invited to accompany a couple that was moving to Texas. He was thrilled and embraced the change. In fact, typical Texan style, he learned to cattle ranch and, of course, to speak Spanish. Yeehaw! <laughs> <laughs> uh, it seems Texas was a good spot for him. Uh, he did well. In fact, he did well enough that by age 24, he was earning $100 a month working a job at the Texas land office. And that meant he was well off enough to elope with a 19-year-old Ethel Estes. Ooh, exciting as that plan sounds. There, This is kind of where things start to go a little badly for him. No fault to Ethel, I want to add. But she had tuberculosis too, which is one reason why they had to elope. Her parents didn't really like the idea of her getting married at all because of her health problems. Anyway, let's get to the short version. Will takes a job at a bank. His wife, they had two children. The first died within hours uh, of his birth. 
almost killing the mom. The second survived, but these birthing experiences took a terrible toll on Ethel's health. Between the two childbirths and the tuberculosis, she just could not recover, and medical bills started piling up. Porter, encouraged by his wife, still pursued his writing career, but he wasn't able to drop his day job at the bank. So he started on the side his own newspaper called The Rolling Stone, and he wrote a lot of articles for it, and it was actually really popular because Will, turns out, was a really funny writer. But the paper, although you know was well-received and sold well, could not make enough money to support itself, and it lost money. So here we go. Will is bleeding money from the newspaper. He's bleeding money with Ethel's medical bills. And then there was this incident at the bank that resulted in a problem that would define his life for the rest of his life. In 1894, an examiner found a shortage in his bank register. Now, to this day, no one knows what actually happened to that money, but a bank shortage means money went missing. (laughs) Oh, dear. It's understandable why he would potentially be stealing money, but it's also very conceivable that someone else did it as well. At this time period, especially in places like Texas, the supervision at banks was more akin to turning in money in a middle school on field day, you know, kind of chaotic and unsupervised. And it was very common, in fact, uh, for people to borrow money from the register if they needed it and then pay it back and no harm, no foul. And uh, people just turned their head. And I'm just saying he may have stolen the money, but it's also not just entirely possible, uh, but very easy to see how someone else could have done it. And absolutely no one would have known. Well, it was quite shocking when they accused Will. I mean, he had an impeccable reputation for honesty. Everyone loved him, and no one imagined that he would do such a thing. The idea that Will Porter would embezzle thousands of dollars was just a shock even to him. And he was accused of embezzling a lot of money, $4,702.94. To be exact. Well, he panicked, guilty or not, and this was probably not the smartest thing he ever did, but he got on a train and just left. He went from Houston to Austin. In theory, he was supposed to be visiting his wife because she had to move back in with her parents because her illness was so bad, but he didn't go to Austin. Instead, he went on to New Orleans and stayed there for a bit, but ended up, this is his plan, going to Honduras, because remember, he spoke Spanish. But anyway, his plan... Simple, but not brilliant. Just stay there until the statute of limitations on embezzlement runs out. (laughs) Yeah, not the most well-thought-out plan. Uh, Apparently, he did write Ethel and tried to convince her to move to Honduras, but, I mean, she was really sick, and it just was not physically possible for her to do something like that. In fact, she was going to die. And when he understood this was the reality, uh, to his kind-hearted credit, He did come back to the U.S. and was with her all the way to her death. And right after that, though, he had to face the courts. And this is where historians really don't agree on uh, on what to do with O. Henry's guilt. Did he do it or did he not? Uh, Henry claimed even in prison that he never stole it. And one time medicine went missing in the hospital where he worked in the prison. They asked him if he took it. He said this, I am not a thief and I never stole a thing in my life. I was sent here from embezzling bank funds, not one cent of which I ever got. Someone else got it, and I'm doing time for it. You know, so 
who knows if he had a hand in the embezzlement or not. And it seems that courts uh, were not totally convinced. And the end result of his trial was that most of the charges were dropped, but he was still convicted of stealing $299.60. That's <laughs> a big decrease. Yeah, it's that 60 cents. <laughs> Anyway, which isn't near as large a sum of money as original accusation, uh, but there was still the problem that he fled. He received the minimum sentence possible, but on April 25th, 1898, the day the Spanish-American War started, was also the day he started his five-year sentence in the Ohio Penitentiary. Oh, no good. Well, the period in prison, uh, it seems to me, is what changed Will Porter into... Henry. Although he had used that pen name before, and we haven't brought up much of his writing before this time, but he had done quite a bit of writing since he'd been to Texas, besides just the magazine or the newspaper that he uh, had bought. He had sold some stuff and was that was even nationally syndicated. But his time in prison changed the person of Will Porter. He isn't the same person when he walks out the door that he was when he went in. For one thing, he had quite a bit of time, <laughs> as you can imagine. Yeah, five years yeah, of time. to hone his writing skills. But that wasn't just it. In the penitentiary, he developed this unique style that we'll talk about in a minute. And he had this perspective because he was looking at the world as an inmate, and that's a very different way than he had looked at the world before. Of course. And as far as life in prison goes, um, he had it as good as you could have it. He was uh, immediately assigned to the prison hospital because of his experience as a pharmacist. And, you know, know that that job didn't require years of education back then that it does today. But uh, he lived there. He ate and slept there. He was trusted as a bookkeeper, ironically. <laughs> So he was kept entirely away from the general population of prisoners and the, the harassment of the guards that was a common problem in the prisons. So it was never the physical hardships of prison that got to him so badly. Uh, it was the mental things that threatened him and nearly threatened suicide shortly after arriving. No, and you can imagine, first of all, there's just the shame of being in prison and that was something, his prison experience was going to be something that he kept secret for the rest of his life. But secondly, and I believe this is what fueled the endless stories he came up with throughout his entire career after prison, is while he was there as a for pharmacist, he saw, he knew, and he listened to hundreds and hundreds of prisoners. He listened to their stories. He saw who they were as humans and how they were treated in this impersonal prison, prison system. And this moved him. There's a quote from a letter that he wrote his father-in-law from prison, and he says this, there are four doctors and about 25 other men in the hospital force. The hospital is a separate building and is one of the finest equipped institutions in the country. It is large and finely furnished and it has every appliance of medicine and surgery. The doctor goes to bed about 10 o'clock and from then on during the night, I prescribe for the patients myself and I go out and attend the calls that come in. If I find anyone seriously ill, I have them brought to the hospital and then they're attended by the doctor. I never imagined human life was held as cheap as it is here. The men are regarded as animals without souls or feelings. And he goes on, and I won't read all of it, but he goes on to describe the brutal living that they were doing and the brutal working conditions of the inmates 
13-hour days, the way they were viewed by the outside world and by the institution at large compared to how he had seen himself or how he saw the other men within the system. O'Henry is going to get out after 39 months because of his impeccable behavior in prison. The story goes that he told a fellow prisoner, I will forget that I ever breathed behind these walls. Mm, Okay. Well, Will Porter starts over at age 40, uh, going to New York, a a town he would call the Four Million. (laughs) He's an ex-con, a widower, his daughter living with her grandparents. Yes, but this time he is not going as Will Porter. He is now O. Henry. He won't use the name Will Porter until his gravestone, which sadly is a short nine years later. And he um, lived in a cheap hotel and he lived in a community he called Baghdad by the subway. (laughs) Um, This is the material for all of his stories. He wrote about the common person and in his writings, he tells their stories and this brings him success. He said this, I would like to live a lifetime on each street in New York. Every house has a drama in it, which is of course, true. His first year, he published 17 stories, but it wouldn't be long till he was publishing 66 stories a year and making serious money. Uh, He gives urban life the kind that is so easy to dehumanize. Just think of masses of people, but he, he, he humanizes it. He gives the city a human face. The people in the tenement houses aren't just dirty masses. Now they're individuals and they have stories and they have hearts and they have personalities. He made a name for himself and he finally started making real money. He started making $500 (laughs) per story. I mean, that's a long way from $100 a month back in Texas. But the drinking was a problem. Um, He was drinking at a rate of two bottles of whiskey per day. Oh, my gosh. I mean, nobody can sustain that. It it made him shiftless as an employee. And he produced great stories, but they would be late. He'd be hard to track because he spent his days wandering the streets, moving from one cheap hotel to another. And he really frustrated his bosses, one of which was the famous Joseph Pulitzer. Of the prize. Yes. Well, late 1905, O'Henry agrees or I guess agreed, to write a Christmas story. But he never got around to actually writing it. The due date for the story came and went, and there was no story. The illustrator for the story trudged through the snow to track down O'Henry because he had to get started on the illustrations. And O'Henry said to him, I'll tell you what to do, Colonel. Just draw a picture of a poorly furnished room, the kind you find in a boarding house or rooming house over on the west side, In the room, there was only a chair or two, a chest of drawers, a bed, and a trunk. On the bed, a man and a girl are sitting side by side. They're talking about Christmas. The man has a watch fob in his hand. He is playing with it while he is thinking. The girl's principal feature is the long, beautiful hair that is hanging down her back. That's all I can think of now. But the story is coming. Pretty much it. (laughs) The illustrator took that, but the story didn't come to the desperation of the editor. It was just a few hours before the absolute deadline. They could not wait any longer. And O'Henry told the editor to lie down. O'Henry pulled out a bottle of scotch and then three hours later presented them the gift of the Magi. 
It's been reprinted in magazines every year for the last 115 years. And not just that. It's so beloved. Uh, it's inspired countless movies. There is a Muppets version. <laughs> there is a Sesame Street version. There is a Mickey Mouse version. There is a Rugrats version, a Saturday Night Live version. And, and that's just here in the United States. And there's even a Family Guy parody uh, internationally, it's being translated into languages and cultures all over the world, and uh, those that celebrate Christmas and those that don't. Well, before we read this ubiquitous Christmas story, we need to finish the story of O. Henry's short life, which in so many ways mirrors so many of his stories. One of the key features of O. Henry's story is their dependence on irony and surprise endings. So when you read one of his stories, Unsurprisingly, you will have a surprise ending. Mm -hmm. Yeah, He was known for this. Yet the real irony is that he spent lots of energy keeping his life a secret while writing stories that were often based on facts, stories that he knew were true, some of them even autobiographical. Not even his daughter knew until after his death that he was a convicted felon. He never even tried to clear his name. He never wrote anything that even resembled bitterness. His stories weren't known for their deep characterization. There's not these important, complicated themes. I mean, we're not going Emily Bronte here. Mm. It's all plot. They are formulaic. They're fun. He wanted to provide casual entertainment, and that's what he did. In 1907, he married again to one of his childhood sweethearts, a lady by the name of Sarah Lindsay Coleman. He moved her and his daughter to live with him in New York. Then he bought a really fancy house on Long Island, as well as an apartment in Manhattan. By this point, he was actually making gobs of money. But the problem was he was spending it faster than he could actually make it. He bought fancy clothes and he gave away excessive amounts of money to random people, often poor people that he would run into on streets or out in front of restaurants. Sometimes beggars would approach him and ask him, for pennies, he'd give them just large wads of cash. One critic called him gay, irresponsible, imprudent, hoaxing. No writer in the language seems clever immediately after one reading of O. Henry. What does a comment like that mean, do you think? <laughs> well, to me, it means he's a genius. And we've discussed geniuses before. And uh, like many geniuses, uh, they're haunted by certain things. And uh, the secrets or the, the demons that were tormenting took a toll. His marriage was short-lived. Sarah, his ex-wife, later said, No one could manage that man. He was a law unto himself. Uh, and in the summer of 1910, he collapsed in his hotel room. A friend called an ambulance. He checked himself in the hospital under the alias Will S. Parker. He joked as they checked him in that he was going to die only worth 23 cents. And right as he was losing consciousness, he said this, turn up the lights. I don't want to go home in the dark. And in the morning, he died of cirrhosis of the liver and diabetes. And yet again, the final irony was that after he died, his reputation just blew up more. His stories made a fortune for his wife and daughter. Five million copies of his book sold in eight years after his death the Society of Letters and Arts established the O. Henry Memorial and began awarding prizes every year to the best writers of short stories in America or Canada. 
The Society sold to Doubleday the rights to publish the O. Henry Prize stories, and the O. Henry Prize has been awarded every year since then. In 2019, the O. Henry Prize printed its 100th anthology of the year's greatest short stories. In his lifetime, O. Henry wrote over 250 short stories. Many critics have called them sentimental, and that's really not an unfair criticism. But most of us don't care that they're sentimental. That's what we like about them. Others have said that he wrote stories to keep his own spirits up. Well, that may or may not be true. I don't know, because no matter why he wrote them, they've kept all of our spirits up, and that's for over a 100 years. So in the spirit of O. Henry, we do need to read his most famous Christmas story, The Gift of the Magi. It's simple. The narrator is omniscient. There are only three characters, a man and his wife and a woman who cuts hair for a living. The plot, like many of his stories, forms what we call a cross pattern. Two people are following paths. The story will intersect and these two characters' paths will cross. This causes the story to have an unexpected twist and will create a bit of situational irony. And remember, that's when a situation is the opposite of what the characters or even the readers come to expect. So we can look for that. It's not easy to miss, though, I will have to say, in this story. The story is set in New York City in an apartment on Christmas Eve. It's titled The Gift of the Magi, which we can't go without suggesting, or not suggesting, but telling you that Magi comes from the biblical story out of the book of Matthew, where on the, uh, we don't really know when it was, but after Jesus Christ was born in the New Testament, some wise men from the East came and presented the baby Jesus with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which were very precious at the time, very expensive. And of course, Magi is the King James Version of what these wise men were called in the King James Version of the Bible. So when you say the gift of the Magi, really the only time people ever talk about Magi, I don't know that we would ever use that word, except when referencing the biblical story when men from the East brought gifts, valuable gifts, to Jesus Christ. So on that note, should we read it? Let's do $1.87. That was all. She'd put it aside, one cent and then another and then another, in her careful buying of meat and other food. Della counted it three times, $1.87, and the next day would be Christmas. There was nothing to do but fall on the bed and cry, so Della did it. While the lady of the home is slowly growing quieter, we can look at the home. Furnished rooms at a cost of $8 a week. There is little more to say about it. In the hall below was a letter box too small to hold a letter. There was an electric bell, but it could not make a sound. Also, there was a name beside the door, Mr. James Dillingham Young. When a name was placed there, Mr. James Dillingham Young was being paid $30 a week. Now, when he was being paid only $20 a week, the name seemed too long and important. It should perhaps have been Mr. James D. Young. But when Mr. James Dillingham Young entered the furnished rooms, his name became very short indeed. Mrs. James Dillingham Young put her arms warmly around him and called him Jim. 
You have already met her. She is Della. Della finished her crying and cleaned the marks of it from her face. She stood by the window and looked out with no interest. Tomorrow would be Christmas Day, and she had had only $1.87 with which to buy Jim a gift. She had put aside as much as she could for months with this result. $20 a week is not much. Everything had cost more than she had expected. It always happened like that. Only $1.87 to buy a gift for Jim. Her Jim. She had had many happy hours planning something nice for him. Something nearly good enough. Something almost worth the honor of belonging to Jim. There was a looking glass between the windows of the room. Perhaps you have seen the kind of looking glass that is placed in an $8 furnished rooms. It was very narrow. A person could only see a little bit of himself at a time. However, if he was very thin and moved very quickly, he might be able to get a good view of himself. Della, being quite thin, had mastered this art. Suddenly, she turned from the window and stood before the glass. Her eyes were shining brightly, but her face had lost its color. Quickly, she pulled down her hair and let it fall to its complete length. The James Dillingham Youngs were very proud of two things which they owned. One thing was Jim's gold watch. It had once belonged to his father, and long ago it had belonged to his father's father. The other thing was Della's hair. If a queen had lived in a rooms near theirs, Della would have washed and dried her hair where the queen could see it. Della knew her hair was more beautiful than any queen's jewels and gift. If a king had lived in the same house with all his riches, Jim would have looked at his watch every time they met. Jim knew that no king had anything so valuable. So now Della's beautiful hair fell about her, shining like a falling stream of brown water. It reached below her knee. It almost made itself into a dress for her. And then she put it up on her head again, nervously and quickly. Once she stopped for a moment and stood still while a tear or two ran down her face. She put on her old brown coat. She put on her old brown hat. With the bright light still in her eyes, she moved quickly out the door and down to the street. Where she stopped, the sign said, Mrs. Sophronie, hair articles of all kinds. Up to the second floor, Della ran and stopped to get her breath. Mrs. Sophronie, large, too white, cold-eyed, looked at her. Will you buy my hair? asked Della. I buy hair, said Mrs. Sophronie. Take your hat off and let me look at it. Down fell the brown waterfall. Twenty dollars, said Mrs. Sophronie, lifting her hair to feel its weight. Give it to me quick, said Della. Oh, and the next two hours seemed to fly. She was going from one shop to another to find a gift for Jim. She found it at last. It surely had been made for Jim and no one else. There was no other like it in any of the shops, and she had looked in every shop in the city. It was a gold watch chain, very simply made. Its value was in its rich and pure material. Because it was so plain and simple, you knew that it was very valuable. All good things are like this. It was good enough for the watch. As soon as she saw it, she knew that Jim must have it. It was like him, quietness and value. Jim and the chain both had quietness and value. She paid $21 for it, and she hurried home with the chain and 87 cents. With that chain on his watch, Jim could look at his watch and learn the time anywhere he might be. 
Though the watch was so fine, it had never had a fine chain. He sometimes took it out and looked at it only when he knew no one could see him do it. When Della arrived home, her mind quieted a little. She began to think more reasonably. She started to try to cover the sad marks of what she had done. Love and large-hearted giving, when added together, can leave deep marks. It is never easy to cover these marks, dear friends. Never easy. Within 40 minutes, her head looked a little better. With her short hair, she looked wonderfully like a schoolboy. She stood at the looking glass for a long time. If Jim doesn't kill me, she said to herself, before he looks at me a second time, he'll say I look like a girl who sings and dances for money. But what could I do? Oh, what could I do with a dollar and 87 cents? At seven, Jim's dinner was ready for him. Jim was never late. Della held the watch chain in her hand and sat near the door where he always entered. Then she heard his step in the hall and her face lost color for a moment. She often said little prayers quietly about simple everyday things. And now she said, please God make him think I'm still pretty. The door opened and Jim stepped in. He looked very thin and he was not smiling. Poor fellow, he was only 22 and with a family to take care of, he needed a new coat and he had nothing to cover his cold hands. Jim stopped inside the door. He was as quiet as a hunting dog when it is near a bird. His eyes looked strangely at Della and there was an expression in them that she could not understand. It filled her with fear. It was not anger, nor surprise, nor anything she'd been ready for. He simply looked at her with that strange expression on his face. Della went to him. Jim, dear, she cried, don't look at me like that. I had my hair cut off and I sold it. I couldn't live through Christmas without giving you a gift. My hair will grow again. You won't care, will you? My hair grows very fast. It's Christmas, Jim. Let's be happy. You don't know what a nice, what a beautiful, nice gift I got for you. You've cut off your hair, asked Jim slowly. He seemed to labor to understand what had happened. He seemed not to feel sure he knew. Cut it off and sold it, said Della. Don't you like me now? I'm me, Jim. I'm the same without my hair. Jim looked around the room. You say your hair is gone, he said. You don't have to look for it, said Della. It's sold, I tell you. Sold and gone, too. It's the night before Christmas, boy. Be good to me because I sold it for you. Maybe the hairs of my head could be counted, she said, but no one could ever count my love for you. Shall we eat dinner, Jim? Jim put his arms around his Della. For ten seconds, let us look in another direction. Eight dollars a week or a million dollars a year, how different are they? Someone may give you an answer, but it will be wrong. The Magi brought valuable gifts, but that was not among them. My meaning will be explained soon. From inside the coat, Jim took something tied in paper. He threw it upon the table. I want you to understand me, Dell, he said. Nothing like a haircut could make me love you any less. But if you'll open that, you may know what I felt when I came in. White fingers pulled off the paper, and then a cry of joy, and then a change to tears. For there lay the combs, the combs that Della had seen in a shop window and loved for a long time. Beautiful combs with jewels, perfect for her beautiful hair. She had known they cost too much for her to buy them. She had looked at them without the least hope of owning them, and now they were hers. But her hair was gone. But she held them to her heart and at last was able to look up and say, My hair grows so fast, Jim. 
And then she jumped up and cried, Oh, oh! Jim had not yet seen his beautiful gift. She held it out to him in her open hand. The gold seemed to shine softly as if with her own warm and loving spirit. Isn't it perfect, Jim? I hunted all over town to find it. You'll have to look at your watch a hundred times a day now. Give me your watch. I want to see how they look together. Jim sat down and smiled. Della, said he, let's put our Christmas gifts away and keep them a while. They're too nice to use now. I sold the watch to get the money to buy the combs, and now I think we should have our dinner. The Magi, as you know, were wise men, wonderfully wise men, who brought gifts to the newborn Christ child. They were the first to give Christmas gifts. Being wise, their gifts were doubtless wise ones. And here, I have told you the story of two children who were not wise. Each sold the most valuable thing he owned in order to buy a gift for the other. But let me speak a last word to the wise of these days. Of all who give gifts, these two were the most wise. Of all who give and receive gifts, such as they are the most wise. Everywhere they are the wise ones. They are the magi. And on that note, let's have a wonderful season of giving. Thanks for being with us today. We hope you enjoy uh, the holidays that are coming up and enjoy the stories we'll be telling here on HowToLoveLitPodcast.com. Be sure and check us out on our Facebook page, our Instagram page, our HowToLoveLitPodcast.com page. We can be found all over the place. Have a great Christmas. And end of year. Peace out. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 